So as I mentioned a moment ago, we're now going to shift gear to a topic, reimagining ageing. We've got a very special speaker. Aubrey de Grey is the chief scientist of SENS Research Laboratory here in the US. He's a biomedical gerontologist based in Cambridge, UK and Mountain View in California. And he's the chief scientist officer of SENS Research Foundation, a California-based biomedical research charity that performs and funds laboratory research dedicated to combating the aging process. He's also editor-in-chief of Rejuvenation Research, the world's highest impact peer-reviewed journal in this regard. Please welcome him now as we look to aging and whether humans can in fact live forever. Okay. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> good morning everybody. Uh, yes, so uh, as you've heard, I'm a biologist. Uh, and so it may actually, first of all, be a little bit surprising to you that I would be speaking to a bunch of economists. Um, but, uh, well, I actually am gratified to say that I get a lot of invitations to speak to groups like this. And there's a good reason for that, which is you really need to know what's coming. If you don't really understand what I have to tell you, then you are going to go down quite soon, because some of your competitors will understand. I'm actually, I mean, you would think that what I would actually do today is talk about, mostly about the demographic and um, economic implications of the future of medicine that keeps people healthy late in life. Well, I'm actually not going to do that. I'm only going to spend maybe one third of my time doing that. I'm going to spend most of my time giving you an actual biology lesson. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the implications of this biology are so profound, they will change your outlook on the future so much that if I don't drill it into you, you're just going to let it go in one ear and out the other. You're just not going to want to believe that what I'm saying is actually going to happen. And I don't want that. I want you to come out of this session understanding and believing and being comfortable with the actual logic of what is coming down. Because that's the only way that you're going to go away and actually act accordingly and come up with ways to run your business that are compatible with how the future is going to pan out. Right. So I'm just going to first of all start with this question. Why is it that we are still suffering from health problems late in life, when we've been so successful in eliminating the health problems that historically used to kill so many people early in life. You know, I mean, even just discovering that hygiene is a good idea saved an enormous number of lives. More than one third of babies would die before the age of one 200 years ago, even in the wealthiest countries. And now, as you've just heard from Patrick, you know, the life expectancy worldwide, even taking into account the, um, the poorest countries in the world, is over 70. So things are going well. But they're not going so well for the health problems of late life. Why not? Well, most people would say it's just this. It's just complexity. You don't have to read this slide, don't worry. Um, uh, there's just so much that goes wrong. And it goes wrong at more or less the same time, so these things interact with each other. Most people think it's just complexity, but it's not. Yes, that's part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. 
the main thing comes down to what aging actually is. And this is what aging is. Aging is not a mystery. This is what I really want to get through to you guys right now. Aging is something that we do broadly understand. It is simply the combination of two processes that I'm showing you here. First of all, a process on the left whereby metabolism, in other words, the network of processes that keeps us alive from one day to the next, generates damage. It generates changes at the molecular and cellular level to the composition and structure of the body. And those changes accumulate over time. And the reason why the word damage is appropriate is because the body is set up to tolerate only a certain amount of those changes. So eventually, that um, level is exceeded. And that's when the right-hand process begins late in life, where the function of the body goes downhill. And eventually, of course, we die. So this is all that aging is. And if you can remember that, then you've come a long way already, because most people just don't even understand that. Now, at the moment, we have this problem. The problem we have is that the overwhelming majority of medical money and effort is spent on what I'm going to call geriatric medicine. Geriatrics consists of essentially trying to cure aging, trying to attack the pathologies of late life and eliminate them from the body. And of course, it's a brain-dead way to go, because the fact is that what we're doing there is trying to attack the consequences of something that's accumulating, namely this damage. So more or less by definition, geriatric medicine is bound to become progressively less effective as the person gets older. You know, it's so obvious, but we still do it. And I think the main reason why we do it is because we don't have a good conception in our minds of what aging is. Most people think this. If you ask them, in what ways can people be sick, most people will say something like what you're seeing on this table. They'll say, well, there's infections. I've got a laser body here, good. Um, there's infections, then there's genetic diseases, then there's the chronic progressive diseases of late life, and then there's this crazy, completely different thing called aging itself, which is way out in the stratosphere and so different from diseases that it's kind of off-limits to medicine. But actually, that's complete nonsense. This is the right way to think about the taxonomy of sickness. The, where that 16 come from? I have no idea how to put that in there. Um, um, anyway, um, yeah, the columns are exactly the same as before, all right? But the big black line is in a different place, as you can see. The things in column three, these chronic, progressive, so-called diseases of late life, they're not diseases at all. They're parts of aging. They're just the, the parts of aging that we've chosen to give disease-like names to. I really mean it. That is the only difference. There is no biological difference between column three and column four. So that, first of all, tells you that absolutely column four is not off-limits to medicine at all. But it also tells you that we should not be trying to treat the so-called diseases in column three by anywhere near the same kind of medicine that works so well for column one. All right, so I'm not the first person to think this up, right? This is something that people have, have kind of, a few people anyway, have realized for a long time. And the result has been the advent of a field called gerontology, which for the past century or more has been trying to be more preventative about this whole thing, trying to break the left-hand process rather than the right-hand process, trying to effectively make our metabolism run more cleanly so that it generates damage more slowly, and this, of course, is inspired by the fact that there is a huge amount of variation in the living world in regard to how rapidly aging progresses, so maybe we can learn from that. Unfortunately, that also has been completely ineffective, and this is why. Um, metabolism is a little bit complicated. 
any of you here who have ever written software will immediately see that this is a, um, you know, the ultimate nightmare of uncommented spaghetti code. And um, the thing is, this is an understatement of the problem. This is a simplified diagram of a small subset of what we know about how the body works, how metabolism works. Uh, in fact, that's even, it's even worse than that, because, of course, what really matters is what we don't know about how the body works, let alone all the stuff that we don't even know that we don't know. So, you know, we're not going to be able to tweak this system so as to stop it from doing the thing we don't want it to do, the creation of damage, without having unintended consequences. So, luckily, though, there is another approach. We don't actually need to break either of those two processes that combine to make aging happen. What we can do is simply separate them from each other. What we can do, in other words, is to go in and periodically repair some, most, of the damage that metabolism is generating, so that even though it's being generated at the natural rate, it's not actually reaching this threshold of abundance that causes us to get sick. That is what the maintenance approach is, the damage repair approach. And, you know, it's a paradigm shift. It's a very different way of thinking than what gerontologists have historically been pursuing. And that's why, for several years, after I started um, talking about this nearly 20 years ago now, um, it was actually quite, um, you know, poorly understood and poorly accepted. But now this is totally mainstream. Everyone basically understands that this is what is going on. And of course, it's common sense, right? I mean, because we're already doing it for simple man-made machines, like cars. This car is 100 years old. It was not designed to last 100 years, not even slightly. It was designed to last maybe 10 years. The reason it's still here is because of comprehensive, periodic, preventative maintenance. Just the same thing that I'm talking about. Now, <coughs> Excuse me. Um, of course, there is a problem, which is that the human body is much more complicated than a car or indeed any simple man-made machine. But it turns out that the complexity is not so daunting as you might think. It turns out that all of the types of damage that we accumulate throughout life can be classified into a very manageable number of categories, just seven categories that I'm listing on the left-hand side of this slide. And the reason that classification is useful and important is because of the right-hand side of the table the fact that for each of these categories, we can talk about and develop a way to actually do this damage repair. So, for example, cell loss. That's cells dying when they're, um, well, when they're sick or whatever and not being replaced by the division of other cells. And, of course, the way to fix that is to put cells back, uh, basically using stem cell therapy. And on down the list, um, as you can see, we've got an item in each row and that's why Sense Research Foundation exists, to develop these things. Luckily, this has, as I say, become a mainstream idea now. This is a paper that came out more than a decade after I started talking about this. And the measure of how well accepted it is now is the number of citations. This will be, by some distance, the most highly cited paper in the whole of the biology of ageing this decade. And it's the exact same idea. They've split ageing into nine categories instead of seven, but that's just a different way of splitting it up. It's nothing actually different. So, we at Sense Research Foundation, I won't talk about this very much because I don't have time, but we do um, a lot of research, both around our own, own laboratories and funding universities and institutes, and we have made a number of very profound breakthroughs that have essentially made this all move rather faster than it was before. Uh, luckily, this has got now to the point where we're actually able to spin out a lot of these projects into startup companies. So these are um, a bunch of our spin-outs, 
um, which are you know, still pretty small companies, but they're moving forward. And uh, there are lots and lots of others. This is a very incomplete list of um, the startups that have been um, coming to the fore over the past few years to uh, take this damage repair paradigm forward. And um, you know, these are raising big money now. Some of these companies are public now. Uh, this is still mostly the provenance of um, uh, the province of angel and seed investors, but it is right now becoming something for institutional investors too. So this is something that you absolutely should be paying attention to in terms of an investment opportunity. The nonprofit side of things, which is what we are at Sense Research Foundation, is still vital. So we're still raising money, and anyone who wants to pursue this philanthropically is most welcome to get in touch. But here's the thing. We don't work on longevity. We just do medical research. A huge amount of the media exposure that I get tends to be sensationalist, tends to focus on you know, calling me the prophet of immortality and things like that. But the fact is, longevity is just a side effect of health. right? You've got to always remember that. Ultimately, we're just keeping people healthy, which is not terribly controversial, right? Um, but the fact is, we think we can probably do it really rather well, really rather soon. And that means that people are, on average, quite likely to live a hell of a lot longer than they do today. And that is what I want to spend my last few minutes on, because it's your business. Thing is that, you know, this is such a dislocation, the idea that we would genuinely not get sicker and um, more likely to die with each year that goes by. This is such a dislocation that most people just don't want to think about it. They just want to think, well, okay, I'll believe it when I see it, you know, and they'll just get on with their miserably short lives and make the best of it, right? Um, but the fact is, People who work in pensions or in life insurance, health insurance, anything like this, any, in fact, really, the whole financial services sector, you guys have a responsibility, not just to society, but to your own companies, to think a little bit more you know, grown-uply than that. <laughs> yeah, you've actually got to realize that this is coming. And here's why. Time frames. I think that, at this point, there's a 50-50 chance that these therapies are going to come along and be available to the masses at a decisive level of effectiveness that's really going to essentially eliminate aging within 20 years from now, perhaps a little less. Now, that's quite soon. And that's bad enough. You know, more than half of the people in this room, perhaps much more than half, are going to be able to benefit personally from these therapies. Think about that. But that is not the main message that I want to leave you with today in terms of time frames. When you think about investment, at the end of the day, what you're really thinking about is the mindset of the people who are spending money, the mindset of the people who are actually buying the products that the companies that you invest in are are creating. Now, why do people make particular choices of how to spend money? At the end of the day, some of it is instant gratification, but a lot of it, and especially a lot of it in your world, is long-term. It's based on one's expectation of one's future. 
So that means things like how long you're going to live, how long you're going to stay healthy and productive and able to earn money and stuff like that. Now, you know, these are the big ticket items. You know, pensions, life insurance, uh, aspects of one's inheritance, things like that. These are big ticket items. These are the main things that you guys as investors should be thinking about. So the question that you actually need to be thinking about right now, today, is not how soon are these therapies going to come along, but rather how soon are these thera therapies going to become widely anticipated? What's going to happen at some point in the future is that the, the publicly stated scientific consensus, in other words, not just this one guy with a crazy accent and a beard, right? The publicly stated scientific consensus is going to be, yeah, you know, this is coming, right? And what that's going to do to public opinion is it's going to cause a step change, really a step change, pretty much overnight. People are going to go from expecting to live you know, maybe 10 years, five years, longer than their parents did, to expecting to live pretty much indefinitely. And you damn well better be ready for that change in the public's expectation. Because if you're not, and your competitors are, you're going to go bankrupt pretty fast. I'll stop there. Thanks, Aubrey. One of the reasons we scheduled you uh, into the program and did so early is we're trying to have this group uh, help en enable and help this group think 30 and 40 years uh, hence. I do, however, feel like uh, I'm sitting in the company of some outrageously intelligent genius that's a bit mad. What, um, what was your PhD in? I'm sorry? What was your PhD? You got a oh, I do it? Yeah, 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 my PhD is in biology. Actually, my undergraduate degree is in computer science, and that combination has been quite useful to me over the years. But yeah, I switched in my mid-twenties. <coughs> so when are, you, when are you suggesting that this is actually going to play out? How soon are we talking, and what kind of impact? Are we talking living to 150 if you're born in a year or three, or are we talking about living forever? What, what are we talking about here? Well, so first of all, as I said, longevity is a side effect of health, right? So... Yes, we are, not, we are talking about a situation in which there is no limit to how long someone can live. In other words, you know, today, as, all, as the demographers uh, among you know, the risk of death in the coming year goes up by 10% per year of age. It's just not going to go up anymore. So if we look at the risk of death that young adults have today in the Western world, it's, you know, less than one in 1,000 per year, right? It's going to stay at less than 1,000 however long ago you were born, which, of course, means people are going to, on average, have four-digit lifespans, even not taking into account the fact that the risks of death from causes that don't have to do with how long ago you were born are also going to go down, right? So, yeah, that, it's a big deal. But time frames is the point. When is this going to happen? Obviously, we're not going to have any actual 1,000-year-old people for another 900 years, whatever happens. You know, people are still going to get older at one year per year. But... As I say, it's all about expectation, about what people think their future is going to look like and how long it's going to be. And that step change that I just mentioned about the expectation is very, very close. 
being a biologist of aging myself and knowing the other people who are influential in this space, um, including my good friend David Sinclair, who actually works in this building, so I'm, um, I thank you for inviting me rather than him. Uh, um, uh, the, the, um, um, yeah, th these people, I know what they're thinking. I know what it's going to take for these people to go out and actually say on stage and on camera the kind of thing that I already say. It's not very far away at all. I'm going to say less than five years with high probability. So that's the kind of time frame that you guys do need to be thinking about now. So if you're born today uh, in the Western world, you're likely already to live to 100. That's common belief. You're on the kind of riskier end of the spectrum among your global peers on this issue. Publicly stated, right? If you're born in five years' time, what's your prediction? Oh, I think that there is at least a 10% chance that we will not reach this decisive tipping point of damage repair for 100 years. But who cares? You know, I mean, if, it, if there's a 50% chance of getting there within the next, let's say, 17, 18 years, which is about my prediction right now, you know, that's quite enough to be worth fighting for. Of course, any pioneering technology, the time frame for its actual implementation has to be very speculative. But so what? So we're about to go to our first table conversation of uh, today. And I'll tell you how that works in a second. Uh, but I just want to highlight that uh, you're going to hear from some pretty extraordinary people over the next couple of days. Uh, in fact, I don't think there's anyone on the podium that doesn't fit that bill. Uh, but sitting at tables now, by example, uh, Monty's in the room. He's, uh, he's a, he invented uh, uh, robotic surgery, effectively. He's come from Israel. He'll be on, <coughs> he'll be on the next panel. Uh, we've got a gentleman sitting at uh, table number six who uh, invented the AIDS cure on table number six from Harvard. Uh, these are people who are changing humanity. So we're now about to have a little indulgent conversation at the tables that if this gentleman is anywhere near correct, what does this mean to portfolios and what does it mean to investment? What does it mean to how you do your jobs?